1: Good afternoon, Brooklyn. You're listening to Let's Eat In on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, as usual, and I'm very proud to have today Tracy McMillan on the show. Hey.
2: Hi. Hey, Kathy. How's it going?
1: Thanks so much for coming. I'm
2: excited to be here.
1: The American Way of Eating, undercover at Walmart, Applebee's, farm Fields, and the dinner table is the name of her new book. It's coming out tomorrow, published by Scribner. There's also going to be an awesome event at Housing Works Bookstore, if you're around New York.
2: Uh, It's a launch party followed by a panel, or same thing. Right, it's sort of a mix. I I thought it would be more interesting to have a conversation than just have me stand up and read from the book. And so um, Amanda Hesser and Jim Osland. Um so Amanda's from Food Fifty Two, Jim is from Savour, um Anya Zazadlow from Day of Honey, and then one of my favorite urban farmers, um, Reverend Devaney Jackson from Bedsty Farm. We're gonna sit Oh, down. I love her. I had her on the show once. Oh really? Yeah. She's great. And then um and also um Erica Wides Um, who actually also does a show here on Heritage Radio. We're all going to get together, and and the idea is to talk about anti-foodie foodies, which is... I can't wait for that. (laughs) It's a very interesting name for a panel. Well, we mostly wanted to sort of play with this idea of, you know, taking your food seriously sort of renders you immediately into this sort of precious and elitist category, which in my reporting for the book I found to be absolutely not the case. So it's sort of this thing where you know, there's this caricature of low income people as sort of just jamming fast food into their faces without a care in the world. And and actually, what I found is a lot of people really do care about their food and their meals. And we wouldn't think of them as foodies, but they're just as invested in sort of, you know, the quality of their meals and their health. So I wanted to play with that. And I think that panel will be a really fun way to do it.
1: Yeah. And after checking out your book, um, it sounds like you were once an anti-foodie Yeah,
2: (laughs) it's true. It's true. So I I grew up um, sort of white working class in Michigan. It depends on where you draw the line. Like it's sort of the upper edge of the working class or the lower edge of the middle. Um, You know, and in my family growing up, you know, salad other than iceberg lettuce was something that fancy people did. Um, you know, casseroles were real home cooking and and they actually are still, right? Like I love casseroles. Um, but you there can is get the, a fancy mac and cheese now. <laughs> I know, very <laughs> it's fancy. They'll come in first, full circle. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I really wanted to play with like this idea that, you know, I grew up thinking like any kind of healthier fresh food was something that was only for snobs. Um and, and I think that's, you know, partly like this circular thing that happens that when you're in a community where that's what's available, that is your culture, and that becomes comfort. And and that's part of, I mean, a lot of it tastes good, like it's fine, but that shouldn't exclude like people from eating healthy food, right? And so and it, how do you have that conversation?
1: It's interesting because it seems like you, you really helped answer that and uh, kind of bring that to full light in your book, if I may, <laughs> be the boring reader of your book right now. <laughs> that brings me to a passage, um, just in the uh introduction, where you say, Like all miss, the idea that only the affluent and educated care about their meals has spread not because it is true, but beca- but because parts of it are. Healthier food is more expensive. So is the fact that it can be hard to find in poor neighborhoods, and yet it requires an impossible leap of logic to conclude from these facts that that only the rich care about their meals. And at the end of, by the end of the introduction, you had kind of found a lot of antithesis to, uh, Antitheses to um, you know, you know it's not just the rich who care about their food. Basically,
2: yeah. Well, it's been really interesting. The more that I've sort of worked on the book and, and been talking about it, the more that I, I've really come to sort of think that you know it's actually not healthy food that's elitist. It's fast food because I, I think that you know only somebody who had never talked to a poor or working class person would think that poor and working class people only want to eat crappy food.
1: Mm-hmm. You know? So it's
2: fast food that's elitist, or well, the uh. like this idea. that that, I mean, obviously, fast food culturally is not elitist, mm-hmm. but that the idea that the only kind of authentic working class food experience is fast food, I think that's something only an elite would come up with.
1: Ah, yes. I see. So it's all about the perspective, too. Um, so let, let me just uh, back up and explain or help uh, elucidate this wonderful book. Um, I just, I'm, I think it's come at such a great time. I'm so inspired by it. And, um Thanks. You know, I have this like little quote on my blog from Thoreau's Walden where he says, no one can be an impartial or wise observer of human society, but from the vantage point of what we should call voluntary poverty. <laughs> and Tracy really, really um, kind of like uh, went all out on that by going and working in these, you know, uh, minimum wage jobs first at farms in America and then at retail stores Walmart for example then as a server at Applebee's and it's actually in the kitchen you're in the kitchen sorry 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 it's okay yeah and that you know at the end you know you, you you just cook for yourself, too, for a bit, which is exciting for me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, we tried to, you know, come up with a good balance of how much I was going to talk about my own experience and my own cooking, because really the subject of the book shouldn't just be me, right? It's the people um, that I was meeting and the people that, are, you know, actually do these jobs for a living day in and day out year round. Um, you know, one of the, the really interesting things has been that, you know, as the first reviews have been coming out, there seems to be this assumption that because I'm a white woman who went to college and, you know, I recently got a very nice, fancy title at Brandeis that does not come with any money, but it, you know, it helps me for networking and things yeah. like that, that I must be like, people are starting to refer to me as like a Muffy, right? Like somebody who went to a really elite college and I, you know, I'm just sneering down my nose at, um, you know, regular people and the sort of funny thing. I don't even thing, know what that means, Muffy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, whatever. Okay. But I mean, I think what's sort of interesting about it is that, you know, in my normal quote unquote real life, like I don't actually make more money than I would have if I was working at Applebee's. You know, I I almost never go out to eat because I can't afford anything that's actually, you know, a lot better than what I can make at home for myself quickly and cheaply. Um, you know, I struggle with my bills like everybody else. And really the only reason I live in New York is because I got into a stabilized apartment. So my my rent is reasonable. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's been really interesting to sort of have these conversations with people. And the default assumption is always that, you know, I'm some rich girl, like that's just sort of slumming through (laughs) these jobs. And, and, you know, and it's obviously one thing when it's like internet trolls, but when when there are like reviewers who are paid to read the book and like that's their (laughs) assumption, right? It's a really interesting conversation to start to have.
1: Well, whatever. Um, You had the guts to explore this firsthand, you know, take personal sacrifices and tell the stories of the people that you met, which is, you know, the best, you know, some of the best parts of the book to me, which were really enlightening. And I know that you had great um, connections and learned a lot through other people. um, And that's an exciting part of the journey. Uh, We were talking a while ago when we met at the book festival Brooklyn Mm -hmm. book festival about um a a book by Barbara Einreich called Nickel
2: and Dimed right so obviously um anyone who reads my book will see that I'm a, a big Ehrenreich fan um I think she did a really beautiful job in Nickel and Dimed um writing about what it's like to um you know work in the service sector in the U.S. and try and get by on those wages and you know her book was pegged around the advent of welfare reform where all of a sudden we tied social assistance to being engaged in the workforce which has a you know it 's been this very interesting journey in terms of how American society works because now you know it seems to be that people have come upon the realization that you could work and shockingly still be poor in the u s which I think 's been true for a lot of people for a long time, um, but I wanted to really dig into what that means uh, when people are trying to eat right because that 's a very basic human need. And so, you know, what happens to your interest in cooking or your interest in nutrition when you're juggling all of those different stresses? And obviously, I'm not going to experience it the same way Um, someone who's going to be doing that for the long term is going to, but there's, you know, I did find that, the way I thought about food changed a lot over the course of doing the yeah. book, and I thought that was really informative for me. Yeah, definitely. So
1: you also okay? So you're an anti foodie at first, non fancy <laughs> right. foodie. I was a I very say.
2: grouchy, like class warfareish. <laughs> and you were writing uh, inv-
1: investigative journalism on other topics, not food, right? Mostly poverty. How did
2: it, you know, strike you to write this whole book and take up a year of your life to <laughs> research for it, <laughs> it on actually, food? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it was interesting. I had um, been working as a poverty and welfare reporter in New York City. So actually, my, my job was to go and hang out with you know, people on welfare or um, making very little money and things like that. And um, I got an assignment from my editor at City Limits Magazine to go and cover a sustainable food cooking class. And this was about eight years ago now. So it wasn't a big deal yet to sort of talk about these things. And when she gave me the assignment, I was sort of like, Oh, this is great! This will be a real <laughs> interesting. Good luck, hippie. You know, cause the, yeah. you know the um, the guy taught by the class Brian Terry was taught Terry. by Brian Terry, him. right? Who's lovely. You know, and he's this very interesting African American like man and chef and and sort of advocate and, and does like really wonderful work. But I wasn't sold on it, right? Because I grew up being like, like, yeah, whatever, hippie. Oh, those kids will love those vegetables. (laughs) But I'll go. My editor told me. Um, And I ended up hanging out and following the class for about six, eight months. And, you know, shockingly, education worked. And, you know, the kids, and I I say shockingly, sarcastically, right? Um, Like the kids in the class not only, you know, sort of could parrot back the lessons, but they could talk about it in sort of their own slang and their own terms of speech. And I thought that meant, you know, that's actually kind of working. And the more I spent time talking with them about how food worked in their neighborhoods, the more everyone said like, yeah, this is all great. I'd love to eat more organic food. I'd love to eat more fruits and vegetables. I like cooking. It's not really easy to do that in my neighborhood. Mm. Um, you know, and so for them, it was a question of access and education and things like that. And so I, we ended up, when we ran the piece on the cooking class, I actually um, went ahead and crunched the numbers to do the first analysis of food access in the city. So this wasn't talked about as a problem. Um, Beforehand, so we had to, you know, there's private industry data on where how many supermarkets there are and things like that. Um, but we sort of did that independently at City Limits and came up with like a zip code by zip code guide to food access in the cities to sort of start that conversation. Right. Um, and so two things happened. One, it was actually really useful when communities started using that data to advocate for farmers markets in their neighborhoods. Um, and since then, the city's gone on to um, copy the same metric that I had developed. Um, And that's now used in in policy here, which is really exciting. And two, I realized that I could write about the sorts of things that I was interested in, which is experience of working life in America, through food. Mm -hmm. And people would talk to me and be excited about it because... the. (laughs) <laughs> there's not a lot. I'm not of... excited about talking about food at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should try trying to talk to people about welfare at parties. Oh no, <laughs> yeah, right. So I, you know, I sort of say to friends, "I'm like, yeah, nobody ever wanted to talk about welfare at parties, but you know, start talking about supermarkets, and and people can immediately relate to what that means, right?" Yeah, true. There's not that much narrative in the U.S., or at least there hasn't been. Like I think in the last year, there's been more of a narrative around class difference in the U.S. But that you know, to get people to talk about poverty, you usually have to get them to be like, right. There's class inequality in America. Not everybody is middle class, and, and that's sort of a big, like, leap. But yeah. it's really easy when you talk about supermarkets and you say, well, you know, people in some neighborhoods don't actually have good supermarkets. So what do you think that means for their diet? And everyone gets it right away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everybody you can su- eats. Yeah, everybody eats. So you can sit down and have a really interesting conversation about, you know, what life is like in working in America without having to sort of turn someone's like idea of America on its head. Yeah, <laughs> which I found to be much more useful. <laughs> (laughs)
1: So you do a lot of exploring about class issues through the lens of food in this book. And from the very beginning, um, there's an encounter with uh, the family of uh, uh, farmers who are, um from Mexico, I believe, and you spoke fluent Spanish to them. And they're like,
2: what? <laughs> Why would you want to work here? <laughs> well, I wouldn't say fluent, but, you know, I, I have some very basic command of the language. It was much better, by the way, oh, uh, okay. three years ago. <laughs> um, but, you know, very initially, I um, through like a network of people. I got to stay in a trailer in like a trailer park full right. mostly of Mexican farm workers. And um, the family whose trailer it was were gone. They had gone back to Mexico for a few weeks. And, you know, my sort of advisors had been like, "Okay, so what you should do to find work is just get up, go out the door and just start asking for work, Mm -hmm. which, you know, for me as somebody who usually operates in a white collar professional environment is a little weird. It's sort of like going up to the Condé Nast building and trying to flag down editors as they come out the front (laughs) door, which, you know, doesn't. Really happen, I said okay, I'll I'll go and do that. And I walked out the front door and I, there were some people next door, and I was like, "Hola, cómo está?" Um, you know, I'm looking for work, and you know they were really open to that. They laughed initially, yeah, right? Yeah. and then you know they sort of said, "Really?" I was like, "Yep, I I want to do field work. Do you know of any?" And and luckily, um, the woman who I call a Pilar in the book. Um, she was a Maradoma, doma, so she was a foreign woman, um, and she had had a lot of struggles. So she had had. Um, she was a single mom. She'd left her husband because he had been violent with her, um, and she had two kids. And you know, she'd been in the country for about thirteen years. And so I, you know, she really sort of took me under her wing because my, the story that I shared, and it's certainly been true at different parts of my life was that, you know, I have a lot of family problems. I don't want to talk about it. I just want to work really hard and not think. And if I can earn minimum wage in the field, that's fine. Um, and so we really sort of shared that. And was that sort of true to an extent or was that kind of like, don't talk to me or like, (laughs) I mean, for me, that's definitely been true. Like my childhood was actually like a fairly difficult one. Um, my family, my dad sold lawnmowers, my mom had multiple sclerosis and then she got a head injury. So she was really ill at home when I was a kid and I was the oldest of three. So I did a lot of sort of like trying to help take care of things and stuff like that. And then when, you know, and she ended up going into a home and passing when I was a teenager. So it's a very difficult environment and and certainly create a lot of stress and strain in my family. And so, you know, and those are the sorts of things that you talk about with people when you're talking about what's stressful in your life. So, I mean, we were able to sort of have these very honest conversations about our lives. um, And that really, I think, opened up pilar to, to talking with me mm-hmm. and you know and, and broke i broke the class divides maybe and, i know, think so else? a bit i mean it was interesting the um the one of the grown sons of the family i was staying with came back while i was I was staying there and he was talking to pilar and i sort of asked him i said does, does she know that i'm a journalist like are you sure she doesn't know He's like no she just thinks you're really really broken that you must need some work yeah. And so she's willing to give you some.
1: Now, how hard was it to find jobs like these minimum wage jobs at the Walmart and Applebees and you know, it sounded like this was, uh, you know, kind of difficult to run around and get the farm work. Um, and these are, you know, Walmart is the largest employer in the country.
2: Right. How how did it work trying so to get So, farm tests? work, they were all sort of a little bit different. Farm work was the most difficult for me, probably because I'm a very unusual person for that. I didn't have an easy network to access into it because yeah. there's not a formal application process for the most part. <laughs> so, that was really tricky. And I write about that in the book and sort of how haphazard and potentially dangerous it is as a, <laughs> as a woman, like looking to get help finding yeah. work and how vulnerable you are. Um, for Walmart, you know, I'm from Michigan, which is where I was working at Walmart. So, I mean, all I have to do is wear normal, like Midwestern okay. clothing, and like, I blend. Yeah, you know, I look exactly like everybody else that's applying for work there. And it's also the economy is very difficult there, so having a college degree doesn't really mean that you're not going to end up working at Walmart. Yeah, in yeah, Michigan. that's what I imagine. So, I mean, it was competitive. Like when I got hired at the second Walmart, I overheard a personnel director talking and saying that she had something like 360 resumes. Wow, um, that she was going through. Um, So I felt very lucky to get that position. And Applebee's was just the luck of the draw. Um, I I had applied to everyone that was accepting applications and would take one from me. And, you know, I just lucked out that, you know, I hit it off with the manager who interviewed me um, and he brought me into work. (laughs) Little did they know now they're in this He was a great manager. I really enjoyed
1: him. All right. I can't wait to stop talking. I mean, just keep talking, but we have a little
2: musical break that you picked out. What's the song? Um, We're going to listen to Come Back to Brooklyn, which is a country hip hop song from Gangsta Grass. All right. We'll be right back with Tracy McMillan.
0: following program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Kane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.kane5.com I played it cool but I was a fool not to stop her when she bought
1: All right, we're back with Let's Eat in with Tracy McMillan, author of The American Way of Eating. Hi, Kathy. All right, um, so this book—it's really long, actually. I can't <laughs>
2: finish it all, but—but
1: but not I in an
2: intimidating way, everybody. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I mean it's—it's it's both fun and very, very, very packed with <laughs> information is just so illuminating and um uh, but you know going back to the fun parts one of the things that I loved reading about was how very early into your farm uh experience um you were making this uh, salsa or tomato salsa right using this um Dominican, I believe it, it or, was Guatemalan, uh, actually. Guatemalan recipe that wasn't, I, I love the, how you described the recipe didn't exist. It was just the way she'd been making it forever.
2: Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, to work on my Spanish before I went into the fields, I went and spent um, about five weeks in Guatemala at um, a um, at proyecto linguistico de Quetzaltenango. It's a, a great um, sort of little language school mm-hmm. um, in the second largest city of Guatemala. And when you're um, doing that um, those programs, you do homestays, and so I was living with a family, and you know you eat what they make, and we ate a lot of you know, eggs and rice and beans. And she would make this wonderful salsa verde that just had this wonderfully complex flavor that I, I was like, this is way better than anything I've had in the States. Right. So I kept being like, you know, you have to tell me what the recipe is. And she was looking at me like I was crazy. And I'd be <laughs> like, no, I'm going to write this down. Like, tell me what's in it. And, um, you know, so we sort of cribbed together this haphazard recipe that I, I brought back. And the, the main secret ingredient is that you put time in it. like a fresh sprig of thyme, which gives it sort of like a very nice depth of flavor along with, you know, you know, jalapenos, tomatillos, like onion, garlic, cumin. That sounds great. And like a little bit of salt and playing with the vinegar, like playing with a little bit of the vinegar and salt balance, like really helps. A little oregano, fresh oregano. Yeah, some some oregano is good in that. I think that's in there. Sounds um, good. so it sort of was this thing where I was, you know, in a community where in, those sorts of ingredients were really available and were fairly cheap. Yes. And so I had sort of bought that cause it's a really easy way to dress up rice and beans. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was also cooking like this huge <laughs> pile of green beans that a neighbor had brought over and I was trying to figure out like what to do with them.
1: And you talk <laughs> um, about everything. how, um, on some of your grocery sh- shopping trips, when you're living out in California, the central Valley where you're farming, um, you'd buy a whole sack of, it sounds like lemons and all these fruits and it would be like $10 for the whole total and other stuff I I can't remember But a huge cache of stuff for only $10, whereas back in New York, you described, you know, going to the bodega and finding roaches on the shelves and then
2: having to spend a
1: lot. To be
2: fair, the roaches on the shelves were in like 1995 or 96, (laughs) I think, in my first apartment down at Sunset Park. Right. Um, And not that you can't still find crappy grocery stores like that. Yeah. Um, But you're kind of like resigned to
1: settling with... Whatever they had at whatever prices and
2: Right. Well, you know, I think that particularly when you're working a lot and don't have a lot of control over your work hours and if you're really exhausted, you just sort of naturally end up getting the food that's most convenient for you. And I, I don't think that's a moral judgment on anybody. I think it's just what happens in practical terms for people who are working, right? You know, exactly. as a writer, yeah. I'm really lucky in that, you know, I work an incredible amount and I make very little money, but all of my time is my own,
0: mm-hmm. right? And
2: so I can, I can decide that, you know, I, it's important to me to, like, go to this particular store or to join the food co-op and all of that. And, I, and it's really easy for me to do that because I'm a single person and mm-hmm. I have a flexible schedule. I can sort of do whatever the heck I want. Um, someone raising a family, you know, I think has a lot more demands on their time uh, than I do. And the easiest thing is to just go to what's convenient. So sort of the thing that I started engaging with in doing the book was, you know, what if instead of, you know, expecting people to turn over all of their free time to finding good food, we just made it easy for everyone to get good food, right? Mm-hmm. And and what would it take to do that? And would that really matter Um you know, and it's interesting, I pulled in some um, primatological research on sort of humans and cooking. And, and you sort of see this, like throughout evolution, that, you know, one of the things that really defines species is, you know, obviously, their food sources. And one of the things that defines human evolution was reducing the amount of time dedicated to foraging and to actually eating, because when you're eating raw food, it's something like, primates that are close to us spend four or five more hours a day just Uh. chewing right (laughs) because cooking makes things a lot easier to eat right and so I sort of was like oh well like humans have always been trying to economize like on the time and energy we spend like getting our food because that frees us up for all this other stuff that we do in creating culture and all of that and you know what you know I, I don't know that we should really chastise people you know for continuing that right very interesting. Primor... What a kind- primatologist. Primatology. So it's, it's this um, <laughs> book called Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human. Nice. Um, that's really, really fascinating. I, I was really smitten with oh it. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to have to run through your uh, sources
1: here. Bibliography. <laughs> yeah. and it's a significant it's, bibliography. It's quite awesome. Yeah. Um, you know... Um, People are always saying it's people's choice, your buying power that can, uh, you know, turn around your diet or um, change the food system, maybe. But you um, at one of the stats that came um, in a handout with your book right. <laughs> um, explains that, you know. We're not getting something like 80-some percent of Americans are not getting their daily recommended intake of fruits and vegetables. Right. And it would take a doubling of our national production of fruits and vegetables to meet that demand.
2: Right. Like right now, the American food supply contains about half the fruits and vegetables that it would take for Americans to meet the recommended daily allowances. Right. Right. So we clearly haven't made a priority in terms of our agriculture um, to sort of foster a healthy diet. And so I think, right, there's a couple ways to deal with that. Obviously, people talk about reforming agricultural subsidies and subsidizing smaller production um, which I, I think has you know an important play, role to play. Um, I'm also interested in the idea of sort of subsidizing demand because I think that yeah. m- creates a more sustainable long-term fix because when you subsidize production, you create all these perverse incentives to overproduce oh, or no. underproduce, yeah. right? Which is sort of the problem that we have with corn and soy right now. Um, if you're subsidizing demand and making it possible and easy for people to buy more fruits and vegetables, then you're creating a marketplace and you can let the market do what it does well, which is sort of allocate resources. In a certain direction to meet demand. Um, so, I, you know, I base this on um, there are a number of programs rising up around the country um, through Wholesome Wave and Double Up Food Bucks, uh, which is the Fair Food Network in Michigan, um, where they're giving matching funds to food stamp clients to buy fresh fruits and vegetables, and they're a huge success. People use really? them all, like use them, and then you know, go ahead and spend some of their own money at markets. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think again, this is. Sort of evidence that, you know, low income people understand and appreciate good yeah. food Going the problem back to is access, not just in terms of whether or not there's a store, but time and money. Right. Going back to we
1: all want to eat well if we yeah. if we make it easier in the form of cheaper and so forth. Right. Accessible. Um, so what was the least. Favorite uh, episode of your
2: journey here? Um, I think the thing I disliked the most actually was working the night shift at Walmart. Yeah. Um, and I was I was talking to someone yesterday. That sounds and like a horror movie about to happen. It just <laughs> it just wasn't fun. It was really boring. It's really isolated, stocking shelves at night. You're in an aisle all by yourself. Humongous so not, aisles, too. Very yeah. long aisles. <laughs> um, and then I th- I think part of it too is that um, you know Walmart. It was the sort of work and living environment that's closest to. what I actually grew up in Mm -hmm. and so you know it's very interesting to go for me as somebody who's not a Mexican immigrant to go and live in that community because even if I don't like the work it's just really interesting and new right and I'm a really curious person so I found that really fascinating and the same thing with the restaurant kitchen which I hadn't worked in for probably 10 or 12 years really fascinating really fun really fast-paced Walmart is really what would have happened to me if I hadn't like had the opportunity to go on to college. So if I hadn't gotten my scholarship to NYU and I hadn't managed to get myself together enough to go off to school, right, working at Walmart for 10 or 12 years could very easily have happened to be my life. And so there's something about that that I think was a lot more unsettling. And certainly seeing um, that the people I was working with had worked there, not you know just for a couple years, but like 7, 10, 15 years. Like, these are people... Um, who don't have that much education, and in prior generations, probably you know, in an ideal world, would have gone to work in factories with union jobs. And what they've got now is Walmart, or perhaps a farm, right? Or yeah. a farm going further back.
1: Well, um, we just only have a few minutes left. Although I feel like there's so much more to talk <laughs> about. Please do check out the American Way of Eating um, out tomorrow. It's it's a great read. Great um, book panel uh, event tomorrow night at Housing Works Bookstore. Um, my favorite question though of the day.
2: Tracy, what is your ultimate date meal? My ultimate date meal? I would say, you know, I actually, a nice cut of meat. um, Like steak is really nice. I never get to eat anything like Mm that. Oh, it doesn't Just nicely cooked, like whatever it is. Um, A good salad. Actually, you know, I'm really into Mexican food lately. So like if somebody made me like some really good carne asada tacos and like a nice like slaw or like a jicama slaw or something like that, that would be great. I would be into that, but at this point, really anything somebody else will cook for me, I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, sounds like you're a pretty busy lady lately. lately. Yeah, it's devolved into a lot of oatmeal and crackers. Gosh,
1: well, congratulations! (laughs) Thank you, thank you so much for putting yourself out there for our benefit and our learning. Thank you, really appreciate it.
0: All
1: right, check out her website, TracyMcMillan.com. That's me. And uh, that's about all the time. So we'll see you next week. Thanks to everyone at Heritage. I'm Kathy Irway. We're signing out.
2: Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network.